happened, the alternative history show. I am Richard Pulsford, stand-up comedian and unprofessional historian. In this show, we'll explore some of the historical people associated with and events which happened on this very day in history, which is the 19th of July. Uh, that's before we delve into some of the history of the town where tonight's show is taking place. Yes, we're in the famous Lancashire seaside town with the award-winning promenade, which has no trams. Yes, it's Morecambe! We're part of the Morecambe Fringe Festival, one of the UK's newest and most exciting festivals, which only sprang to life in 2017. And we're in the festival's main venue, which goes by the name of the Alt Space, used for drop-in sessions, performance workshops, comedy and storytelling nights, and which during the festival, I believe, hosts a grand total of 46 shows over two weeks. <laughs> Matt, you are due that heart attack. Yes. The show is being recorded for the It Just So Happened podcast, but we also have a live audience in Alt Space. Let's hope they don't lose control and try to escape as the panel fails to function. So yes, let me introduce the F1 of panels as they take their seats faster than a flood tide rushing into Morecambe Bay. Let me introduce Chris Foster. Yay! Yay! Amy B. Yay! Andy Robertson. Yay! And Sid. Yay! So our first guest, without further ado, is Chris Foster. He is an artist from Lancaster who sees the marvellous in the mundane with his songs about museums and puffins. An enemy review called him dead good, and the Scotsman called him very funny. That's the newspaper. <laughs> Over to you, Chris. Hello, everybody. Hello. 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 My name's Chris. I, I spent my 20s playing championship manager. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest of it are wasted. <laughs> so the 9th of July um, actually sees the birthday of Brian May. Um, so I got my birth card on the, on the 19th of July 1947, Brian Harold May was born. So I brought in this, it says Brian May on the front of, of this card. And it's got three guitars on it. <laughs> Dear Brian May, I got you a card with guitars on, as I know how much you like them. Love from Chris. <laughs> and the reason I want to celebrate Brian May was because he's a man that never ever gets bored and I think it would be really easy to buy a birthday gift for. He's got so many strange and unusual hobbies that I was going to talk about tonight. He's not the first musician with strange or unusual hobbies. Bez from the Happy Mondays is a beekeeper. <laughs> Ronnie Wood is a keen stamp collector. Grandmaster Flash has got over 5,000 mugs. <laughs> <laughs> and Phil Collins, uh, in his spare time, likes to try and contact the ghosts of the Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> but Brian May is the king of hobbies. He's got so many beautiful hobbies. Astrology, he's really into he's the new face of the sky at night. And um, he got to know his hero, Patrick Moore, which was really great for Brian May. And when Patrick Moore actually fell on hard times, Brian May bought Patrick Moore's house and let him live in it for cheap rent. Aww. I thought that's just lovely, isn't it? A good old Brian May. Um, he's really into Victorian stereoscopic uh, photography as well, and this became a bit of like a lifetime pursuit for him. He's written and compiled a really beautiful book called The Village Lost and Found, and it's a painstaking excavation of sort of exquisite photos that bring rural 
uh, village to life by a guy called T.R. Williams. And it's really, really great because you see this in the sort of 1850s village, just absolutely bursting. But no one ever knew where it was. Brian May wasn't satisfied. <laughs> he says to himself, I'm going to find out where this is. So he dedicated the next few years to finding where he was, and he actually did find it out eventually. In 2004, he realised that it was Hinton Waldrift in Oxfordshire, which must have been a great day for Brian May. <laughs> <laughs> the other reason I feel a real affinity with Brian May is because we're big, big Scrabble fans. We're both absolutely big Scrabble fans. Because you hear a lot about rock and roll excesses, don't you, of Queen. But really, on the coach, they were just well into playing Scrabble. <laughs> they used to play Scrabble all the time. Brian May actually uh, scored the highest single word score of any of Queen once on the bus. He got the word lacquers. <laughs> <laughs> and he scored 168 points because the cue was on a triple and he'd used all seven tiles at once. So you know how much how excited I am to go and see Bohemian Rhapsody. <laughs> One scene on the coach for a split second, you see Brian May and Freddie Mercury uh, having a furious war of words. That was my favourite bit of the film. <laughs> I thought, well, what, <clears throat> what could I do for Brian that he'd like? I thought I'll write him, write him a little song. So this, this is just a little song called Brian May Never Gets Bored. <laughs> Brian May never gets bored, never gets bored, never gets bored. Brian May's got wonderful hair, lovely flowing locks. He's well into astrophysics and he's friends with Brian Cox. <laughs> he's a massive fan of badges, he thinks they're wonderful. He's dedicated his life to saving them and making sure they never get cold. He enjoys playing Scrabble, having a night on the tiles. Triple word scores and anagrams always make him smile. Brian May never gets bored, never gets bored, never gets bored. He's a man of many pastimes. He's a man who never gets bored. Thank you. <laughs> And the reason I it was what a great word lack is. <laughs> and it would have been especially uh, special for Brian May. It would have reminded him of making his guitar with his dad that he made out of this sort of 18th century fireplace and he made the knobs out of his mum's knitting needles. And he says one of the favourite bits about making that guitar was actually applying the lacquer. I thought, how lovely. <laughs> I got him a birthday cake. <laughs> uh, it's a Victoria sponge. Uh, it's for Marks and Spencers. I thought we'd just finish my little bit by. We, I thought we could all sing Happy Birthday to Brian May. <laughs> Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, Brian May. And, and we can all have a slice of the Victoria sponge. Right. Thank you very much. Cheers. <laughs>
Thank you, Chris. Yeah, the, the last time I played Scrabble was the last time I had a night on the tiles. <laughs> so, uh, a bit of a serious bit in between the segments here. So, on this day, 19th of July in 1545, King Henry VIII's warship, the Mary Rose, sank. Now, contrary to popular belief, she was not on her maiden voyage, but had already been a successful warship for 34 years. So when Henry became king in 1509, he had no standing navy, but faced threats from the Scots and the French. If his handful of warships was insufficient in time of war, then merchant vessels would simply be loaded with guns and pressed into service. So he had two new vessels built, the Peter Pomegranate and the Mary Rose, named after the Virgin Mary, the Mystic Rose. She was constructed in Portsmouth and fitted in London, and needed about 600 large oaks taken from all over southern England. One main deck beam alone would weigh about three quarters of a tonne, and the hull had four levels separated by three decks. In August 1513, Mary Rose helped in transporting troops to Newcastle, where they then went on to Northumberland to fight the Scots at the Battle of Flodden, where the Scottish King James IV was killed. Now, the ship was substantially refitted in 1536. She had gun ports fitted, and this was a new invention which enabled her to fire broadsides. But the refit also increased her weight from 500 to 700 tonnes. On 16th of July 1545, the French Navy entered the Solons with a fleet of about 225 ships. The English only had about 80, including the Mary Rose, so retreated into Portsmouth Harbour. And for a couple of days there was some firing of cannons, but little else happened. Now, whether because of human error, it was Sir George Carew's first naval command, or was it the weather, there was a sudden breeze while the ship was turning, or was it that overloading with the extra weight? Either way, whatever the reason, early in the morning of the 19th of July, the Mary Rose suddenly heeled over and sank. Now, according to the French account, it was because the French galleys were easily pounding the English ships. After heeling over, water rushed in through the open gun ports and equipment, ammunition, supplies and storage containers shifted and came loose. Heavy guns came free and slammed into the opposite side. So, impeding the escape and crushing the men beneath them. For those who weren't injured or killed outright by the moving objects, there was little time to reach safety. And skeletons recovered from the wreck after its rediscovery in 1971 showed them to be clustered around the companionways that connected the decks with one another. And then there was anti-boarding netting that covered the upper decks, so it just trapped the sailors. So fewer than 35 escapes out of a crew of more than 400. The wreck was raised again, uh, famously in October 1982. That was when the Mary Rose rose again. Uh, the bones of 179 people were found, and analysis showed that all the crew members were male. Most were young adults, some as young as 11 or 13, and they were mainly of English origin, most likely from the West Country. No jokes in that section. So there you go. Um, I'm now going to introduce our second guest. Our second guest is Amy B. Amy first arrived at the Old Space eight months ago, with her own support, it seems, um, thinking she was attending a talk about stand-up and has been dabbling in comedy ever since. Uh, she once worked in a Pirelli factory testing tyres, where she was happy to let an oily male change every tyre, despite it being the main part of her paid role. Uh, the other part was being to press the enter button on the keyboard a few times every day, apparently. Best job ever. <laughs> but you say you're a better feminist now. I am. So that's good to know. Over to Amy. Um, so the 19th of July, 1848, saw the start of the women's rights movement. It happened at the Seneca Falls Convention. This had been organised by Elizabeth Cady Stanton after a chance meeting between her and Lucretia Mott at an anti-slavery meeting. 
Although both ladies were well-established supporters of abolishment, they'd been barred from the proceedings because they were women. Instead, they were allowed to congregate in an adjoining room where they could use that time to chat about the weather, lace crafts and other things of no consequence. Or they could organise a little meeting to bring down the patriarchy. They weren't the first people to have this idea. The French women had tried to move forward with equal rights in the late 18th century. However, they had been thwarted by the male ruling powers who grew concerned about ladies spreading their terrible lady ideas, not by talking, but by passing messages written on slips of paper amongst each other. So concerned were they about ladies flyering for equality that they came to the only logical conclusion and banned pockets for women. So the women couldn't carry anything. A temporary hiccup that has left a generation of women able to carry many things in enormous handbags instead. Although now devoid of pockets, the ladies had more difficulties in scratching their bits discreetly in public. Back at the conference, the women agreed a declaration of sentiment a total of 18 grievances, all of them rather wordy. This was the mid-1800s and they haven't invented the word concise yet. <laughs> but essentially, women were demanding the same rights given to, and I quote, even the most ignorant and degraded men. Harsh. <laughs> Although it could be argued that one of the most ignorant and degraded men on the planet is currently the President of the US. So maybe they were just setting the bar really high. <laughs> The specific areas to be addressed included married women being legally dead in the eyes of the law, metaphorical zombies as opposed to the brain-eating variety, and they had no rights to property, even if it was theirs in the first place. So many women refused to marry, choosing instead to remain single rather than lose ownership of their property. I mean, I most certainly would have reconsidered marrying if I'd have risked losing all my worldly possessions. Namely, a well-played massive attack CD, an inflatable chair, and a slightly unreliable Nissan Micra. <laughs> Husbands had legal power over and responsibility for their wives, to the extent that they could imprison them, beat them with impunity, or indeed beat them with any other collection of small mythical creatures. Impunity? No, let's move on. Oh. Okay. So divorce and child custody laws favoured men, giving no rights to women to look after their own children, which could seem like a pretty raw deal, well, a pretty good deal, when you've tripped over your kid's hoop and stick for the tenth time that day. But this was the 1800s. Who would they get to clean the chimney? Most occupations, <laughs> <laughs> Most occupations were closed to women. Women couldn't attend university either, so they couldn't develop through education. As if this wasn't bad enough, when women did work, they were paid only a fraction of what men earned. And there's a lot of disparity even now. I set out to be an orthopaedic surgeon, but was blocked at every avenue from operating. By security, apparently you need to be employed by the trust and you've got to have training. <laughs> and equal pay. When I requested the, to be paid the same as a US president, my manager at the Sainsbury's Cafe laughed in my face. And crucially, women were not allowed to vote. A biggie. And conversely, it almost didn't happen. The conference was for women, but they had permitted men to come and observe. And once the women had chatted about their frustrations, and as the convention drew to a close, they allowed the men, those who had shown their commitment to the cause by remaining and listening, to feedback on what they'd heard. And a gentleman by the name of Frederick Douglass did speak, pressing the idea that asking for the right to vote might be a good thing, being able to choose who wrote the laws that the women had to follow. 
This is the only positive example of mansplaining in history I have ever come across. And it was this key demand that kicked off the women's suffrage movement, but is actually nicer than it sounds and not at all related to suffering. There were two types of suffrage campaigners, the suffragists who kept it professional, campaigns and flyering. Now they've got handbags, they were unstoppable. And the suffragettes, hell-bent on getting the vote, they used all means necessary, which, despite what I said less than 15 seconds ago, did actually involve a smattering of suffering. Leading by example for the suffragettes was a formidable woman called Emily Davison. Best known for meeting her fate, stepping in front of the king's horse, she routinely hid in the Houses of Parliament, sneaking in through ventilation shafts, inadvertently starting another movement, a crawling one that continues to be seen in every action movie since as a hero makes their way to save the day. So 70-ish years on from this day in 1848, women gain the vote. And 170-ish years, uh, years on in Western society, women's rights have transcended far beyond Elizabeth Statton's sentiments. We remain alive in the eyes of the law when we get married. And moreover, if we want to identify as a zombie, then we can. Although eating <laughs> brains is still frowned upon. And if everything goes south, not only do we get to keep what we bring to our marriage, but we can leave with half, although halving the children again totally frowned upon so legally elizabeth's rights have been fought for and won and we're working hard towards carving out equal opportunities after all we like to scratch our bits discreetly in public too <laughs> thank you, thank you. <laughs> well i learned something tonight i always thought the difference between suffragists and suffragettes were the suffragettes were the ones that traveled by aeroplane uh, so my, my second bit, there's a seafaring theme to my bits tonight, is about another ship. This was the one which Matthew Flinders was on. So Matthew Flinders died on the 19th of July, this is in 1814. So a bit of background about him. He was an English navigator and cartographer, born in Lincolnshire in 1774, and joined the Royal Navy age 15 after being inspired by reading Robinson Crusoe. He joined Captain Bly's expedition on HMS Providence, transporting breadfruit from Tahiti to Jamaica, uh, which followed on from Bly's ill-fated voyage on the Bounty. Flinders' first voyage to New South Wales was as a midshipman aboard HMS Reliance in 1795, which was also carrying the newly appointed governor. He became friends with the ship's surgeon called George Bass, who had been born just 11 miles away from his own village. Now, in 1798, as a lieutenant, they established that Tasmania was an island. So the Straits ended up being named after Bass, and the largest island in the Strait was named after Flinders. Now, Flinders married in April 1801, and he tried unsuccessfully to take his new wife Anne on board his ship, the Investigator, as it was about to sail for Australia two months later. And that was against Navy rules, and he was found out. So she had to leave the ship. Uh, been married for two months, and they wouldn't see each other again for nine years, which was how long he was away in Australia. On the voyage, he circumnavigated New Holland, and he would subsequently call it Australia, or Terra Australis, identifying it as a continent. And he had help from an Aboriginal Australian called Bungaree, who managed to placate some of the hostile indigenous peoples that they met en route. On arrival back in Sydney in June 1803, the ship was condemned as unseaworthy. So unable to find another vessel, Flinders set sail for England on a passenger, as a passenger aboard HMS Porpoise. 
But that ship was wrecked on the Great Barrier Reef, so Flinders had to go back to Sydney again, then took command of a schooner called HMS Cumberland to return to England. Now, he was forced to put in at a French-controlled place called Ile-de-France, which is now Mauritius, uh, for repairs in December 1803. But Britain and France were at war, so the suspicious governor kept him under arrest for another six years. In captivity, he recorded details of his voyages for future publication and put forward his rationale for naming the new continent Australia as an umbrella term for New Holland and New South Wales, and that's a suggestion that the governor then took up later. Now, he finally reached home in 1810, so was reunited with his wife, but his health had suffered and he died on this day in 1814. So he didn't live to see the success of his widely praised book and atlas, A Voyage to Terra Australis. And as a postscript to the story, in January of this year, archaeologists were excavating a former burial ground near London's Euston railway station for the HS2 rail project, and Flinders' remains were found and identified. Which brings it back up to date. So, on to our third guest. Uh, our third guest is Andy Robertson. No cheers there. <laughs> <laughs> Andy tells me that he has appeared at a staggering total of four venues since he began his fledgling stand-up career. Uh, but people have been laughing at him for years, apparently, even if he's not sure what the reason for this is. He holds a BA Ons in Archaeology from the University of Lancaster. And if the bloke who owns it doesn't come back soon... I'll have to let it go. Yeah, so over to Andy, thank you. Hello. Oh. <clears throat> the 19th of July, 71 AD was the day the Romans first set foot in Morecambe. Well, actually, it was the day they first set foot on the beach. They'd arrived by ship, and Morecambe wasn't even built yet, except for some huts and the bingo hall. <laughs> oh, and some charity shops. And that Polish deli. The leader was a dim-witted senator by the name of Arceus Maximus Trumpetus. <laughs> A man of whom it was said by the Roman historian Twitertius, he has an ego the size of Jupiter's cock and the brain of a flea. Trumpetus had made a fortune from the slave trade, which he used to buy his way into politics. But he wasn't well liked in the Senate, or anywhere else for that matter. Therefore, the Emperor Vespasian banished him to the furthest, most miserable backwater in the known world, a place called Wales. <laughs> But no one liked him there either, so they gave him a ship and packed him off to find Ireland, or as the Romans called it, Patagonia. <laughs> Despite instructions to sail northwest, Trumpeters headed northeast, and that's how we ended up in Morecambe instead of Ireland. Now at that time, the local tribe were known as the Morikambi, which is where Morecambe gets its name. There wasn't much entertainment in those days. So when the Romans turned up, the tribe flocked to the beach to have a look at them. The newcomers proved a great source of amusement with their short trousers and their silly hats. And people began to laugh and take the mickey. This was a great mistake, since the Romans weren't noted for their sense of humour. Before you could say imperial ethnic cleansing, it all kicked off big style. <laughs> a fair fight to the Morikambi was two blokes thumping each other with big sticks. Therefore, they felt the Romans were cheating when they began using swords, spears, and crossbows, and a big wooden thing that chucked balls of fire. After 90 minutes of carnage, it was game over, with the visitors taking a cup and anything else they could get their hands on. 
Eventually, the Romans built a fort where the Midland Hotel sits, sits today, as well as five supermarkets and a shared load of student accommodation. <laughs> because, well, you never know. Meanwhile, Big Eric, chief of the Morikambi, launched a guerrilla campaign. This put the wind up the Romans because they'd never seen a guerrilla before. In response, Trumpetus ordered his men to build a great wall to keep the locals at bay. The first stage was the building of a giant watchtower designed by the architect Polonius, who was famous for his, his giant erections and didn't come cheap. No trace of the tower remains today, but we know that it cost so much to build that no money was left to complete the wall. It was then that Trumpetus made his fatal mistake. To finance the wall, he used money that should have been set aside to pay his legionnaires. This led to unrest, and eventually the troops planned a mutiny. Trumpetus, however, received word of this via one of his lictors. This was a special type of civil servant who by tradition adopted the forename of their master, in this case being known as Arceus Lictor. <laughs> Thank you. That night, that night, Trumpetus crept over the walls of the fort and ran off into the darkness. But he didn't get far. The Morikambi tracked him down and suspended him over a fire by his toga, which makes my eyes water just thinking about it. Big Eric then offered to hand Trumpetus back to the Romans in exchange for peace. A piece of what we don't know, but the fighting certainly stopped. Back in the Roman fort, Trumpetus was found guilty of embezzling imperial funds and was duly executed by the leader of the mutineers, a centurion by the name of Hilarius Clintonitis. Some, some say Clintonitis was actually a woman who lived and dressed as a man. Well, I can't be certain of this, however, as a legionnaire named Fakius Musis was well known for spreading such scandalous lies. The severed head of Trumpetus was mounted on a stick outside the fort as a gesture of goodwill towards the Morikambi. A short while later, a peace council, known as a circus, was formed. This existed until 400 AD, when the last of the Romans packed his bags and said goodbye to the circus. Oh. <laughs> Off he went with the head of the trump, the trump, trump, trump. Thank you very much. The last comment about the circus is very smart. <laughs> so on to the third of the nautical items. So it was actually the 19th of July 1836 when HMS Beagle arrived in Ascension Island with Charles Darwin aboard. Uh, as he probably declared, the Beagle has landed. <laughs> topical this week. Um, HMS Beagle was a Cherokee-class 10-gun Royal Navy ship launched on 11th of May 1820 from the Woolwich Dockyard on the Thames. And this was her second survey expedition under Captain Robert Fitzroy. On her first voyage, the previous captain had fallen into a deep depression, locked himself in his cabin for 14 days before shooting himself, later dying of his wounds. This time, Beagle had left England uh, in December 1831, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean, and then carried out surveys around the coast of the southern part of South America before returning via Tahiti and Australia, having circumnavigated the Earth. Uh, the expedition was originally planned to last two years, but it actually took nearly five. Fitzroy had sought out a geology expert and gentleman naturalist to accompany the expedition as an extra passenger, and the young graduate Charles Darwin had hoped to see the tropics before becoming a parson. 
and he accepted that opportunity. He was greatly influenced by reading Charles Lyell's Principles of Geology during the voyage. By the end of the expedition, Darwin had already made his name as a geologist and fossil collector. Um, at Punta Alta in Argentina, he made a major find of gigantic fossils of extinct mammals. He ably collected and made detailed observations of plants and animals while exploring on land, with results that shook his belief that species were fixed and provided the basis for ideas which came to him when back in England and led to his theory of evolution by natural selection. The publication of his journal, which became known as The Voyage of the Beagle, gave him wide renown as a writer. In the 1840s, Darwin worked with the botanist J.D. Hooker, who was son of the director of Kew Gardens, who proposed in 1847 that the Royal Navy import tree species and plant them on the slopes of Green Mountain, which is the highest peak of Ascension Island. This project began in 1850, and the trees do now successfully capture sea moisture, which cools as fog and even rain, creating a self-sustaining ecosystem. The last bit on this is the HMS Beagle was broken up on the River Roach in Essex in the 1870s, but there is actually a first-time full-scale replica of the ship, and that's been constructed at the now Victoria Museum in Punta Arenas in Chile. There we go. So, over to our fourth guest, who I thought was going to be Matt, but it's not, it's Sid. And I don't know anything about Sid, so I'm sorry you're going to... Oh, no, he's given me a prompt. Runner-up. Leicester Silver Standard Comedy Festival. Wow. Excellent. So we get an idea of your age there because it's Silver Standard. Uh, told by his teachers he should go far. <laughs> yes, there's more than one interpretation to that. Uh, and the scenery starts the better. Uh, thank you. Thank you. Over to you, Sid. I'm like a last minute substitute here, so. Uh... I, I, I was. I had, I had a few things going on in me in my mind about the day, July the nineteenth. Um, I, I was going to write about the Battle of Waterloo, but that was on July the eighteenth, as everybody here knows. No, right. Um, uh, I'm also going to write about um, Queen Philippa. Does anybody know who Queen Philippa was? No. No. She was a queen of Portugal. And the daughter of John of Gaunt. They, uh, you should all know who John of Gaunt is, because he, he runs a pub down in Lancaster. <laughs> anyway, I decided to write about um, the person who invented the English language. Um, during the course of British history, we've had many great kings. King Richard, who was known as the Lionheart. King William, he was known as the Conqueror. Um, King Alfred, known as the. Anybody? Great. 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 <laughs> <King> Alfred, yeah. <laughs> Burnt the cakes. And there's one on the table there, yeah. But the one king who was born on the 19th of July, 400 AD, stands alone as a legend among all these kings and his name was King Cedric. Anybody heard of it? Yeah. No. He was known as the Who. Right. After the Romans left our shores a void was created. We needed a strong leader who could inspire the populace, a leader who could unite this great nation of ours, who could take us forward. 
So a call was sent out to the four corners of the British Isles for a man of inspiration, a man of courage and a man of integrity. None could be found. King <laughs> <laughs> Cedric was chosen. Little is known of his early life. In fact, little is known of him at all. But what makes him stand out as our most famous monarch is that he invented the English and the Welsh languages. But apart from the Geordie language, which was invented by a slow-witted man with a hair lip, a throat, <laughs> a throat infection and a stammer. Um, while seated in his throne room one day, one of his advisers approached him and in the Roman vernacular of the time, told him that the Romans had left a room full of letters. A's, B's, C's and so on. So, King Cedric decided we need a language of our own, so told his subjects to create what is known today as the English language. After a long hard struggle, this was achieved. The king was pleased until it was pointed out that there were still a lot of letters left over. C's, L's, F's, G's and Y's. So the wise king sold these letters to the Welsh, <laughs> which is how the Welsh language came into being. The Scots Thank you. only bought three letters. The A-C-U. Okay. A week later... Our great king, Cedric, died on the 19th of July. So he was born on the 19th of July, died on the 19th of July. Just like this has just died. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you, Sid. So the fourth ship. Uh, 19th of July 1843, steamship SS Great Britain was launched, designed by Isambard Kingdom Brunel. She was the first ocean-going craft with an iron hull and screw propeller, and at 98 metres was the largest vessel afloat in the world. Brunel persuaded the directors of the Great Western Steamship Company to change his original design from a ship with paddle wheels to one that used new propeller power technology, thus becoming the forerunner of modern ships. The ship took four years and more than 60,000 rivets to build in a specially built dry dock in Bristol's Great Western Dockyard with Brunel as the project engineer. Now Queen Victoria's husband, Prince Albert, travelled on Brunel's Great Western Railway from London to Bristol to attend the launch. One report said that Mrs Miles, the wife of a local MP, launched the ship. Others say she failed to hit the ship with the champagne bottle, so Prince Albert threw one from his table, which successfully smashed on the ship and showered the crowd below with glass. <laughs> when the SS Great Britain began carrying passengers in July 1845, it was in service between Liverpool and New York, and the journey took 15 days. But on her fifth voyage, she ran aground on the Northern Irish coast and was not refloated for a year. In 1850, she was sold and took passengers between Liverpool and Australia, and she then served as a troop ship during the Crimean War. In 1882, she was sold again as a cargo ship, sailing to and from California, but was badly damaged on a voyage to Panama, so was turned into a floating warehouse in the Falkland Islands, before finally being abandoned and left to rust. But she did return to Bristol in 1970, 127 years later, and is now a visitor attraction at the same dry dock where she was built. So there we go. I'm now going to move at pace <laughs> into the second half of the show because time is, is rapidly escaping. So I'm a visitor to Morecambe. Hopefully the panel here can help me establish more of the history. We've, we've touched on some of it tonight. 
I've discovered that Morecambe was actually only founded in 1846. It's relatively recent. It's when the Morecambe Harbour and Railway Company was formed to build a harbour on Morecambe Bay, close to the fishing village of Pools on the Sands. And a railway which would link to Skipton, Keithley and Bradford in the West Riding of Yorkshire. So apparently Blackpool attracted holidaymakers mainly from the Lancashire mill towns, whereas Morecambe had more visitors from Yorkshire as the mill workers from Bradford and the neighbouring towns would come on the train. So apparently Morecambe got the nickname Bradford on Sea. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay, so I'm, I'm on the right track here. And many from Yorkshire went on to retire here. So, yeah. And we are in Yorkshire Street, as it happens. Bra- funny, Bradford. So. Bradford on sea. Bra- Bradford. 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 <laughs> that's that's all. Whichever's in the detail. Yes. Yeah. That's how you say it. Yeah. Yes. So the first thing I discovered about was uh, Frontierland. Does that bring any childhood <laughs> memories to anyone? <laughs> uh, Marine Road West had a theme park from 1906 to 1999. Now the site at one time had been used by customs officers as a vantage point, and then it was used to rest livestock, which had come across an island by boat. And then it was used by territorials as a gun park and firing range. That was until a wayward gunner put a hole in the passenger ferry. Yes, I was going to say passing passenger ferry. What's that? Passing, passenger. Easy for you a to passing say. passenger ferry. Yes, anyway. Uh, so the Thompson family, they bought the park in 1936 when it was called West End Amusement Park. And the family also owned Blackpool Pleasure Beach. So did anyone go there as a child? Was we any loved it, Richard. I absolutely yeah. loved it. But if you're from around here, you were only allowed to go on Yippee Night. Because it was too expensive in the summer. So in the off-season, yeah. you could get a 199 wristband for this Western-themed amusement park, patrolled by uh, Frontier Fred, uh, Morecambe's answer to Mickey Mouse. <laughs> <laughs> so my memories of Frontierland are sort of uh, cagoules on the log flume, and uh, the Texas tornado, this big wooden rickety death trap. <laughs> Uh, yeah, where, being on a woolly jumper, being in a woolly jumper on a Texas tornado, but yeah. we love Yippie Night. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know how it got its name, Frontierland? I'm just saying this to introduce a bit of yeah. you know, education yeah. to you. Yeah. Like, That's what it's all about. People think it was called Frontierland because in the 80s it was turned into a western themed amusement park. But it actually goes back to the Romans again and your man Trumpetus. Because when they got here, they took one look at the Mori Camis and they said, well, so this, this is going to be the frontier here. And they built the wall. So yeah. that's how we got this name. And the Polo Tower, Richard, that was a site. A large steel tube of polos with a white polo around it that yeah. you'd step into. So and it would go all the way up, to down, turn around go. once, yeah. and then come back down. <laughs> <laughs> Exit through the gift shop, buy some polos. <laughs> so it, it, uh, it was 170 feet high, and it was brought from Blackpool. It was, it was. On, it was, on a very uh, long trip, presumably. Uh, oh. Well, yeah, well, a nice little round trip, but it, made way, it was making way for the big one. And so the... Uh, yeah, so there was a dual purpose of the Polo Tower as well. So it wasn't just an amusement ride. They actually uh, sold, well, they actually rented it out as a phone mast for the 20-year lease. And as you mentioned, um, the uh, park, the final frontier of Frontierland was 1999. Unfortunately, the lease, the 20-year lease, had only been signed in 1993. So we had another 13 years of the Polo Tower standing alone. 
Um, you know, so, so the mint with the hole had a whole lot of presence in Morecambe, and uh, to be honest, when it went, we missed it terribly, because the phone reception was awful. <laughs> so was it sold uh, not in mint condition? <laughs> <laughs> we also used to have a 150-foot high Ferris wheel. Ah, yes, yes, I've but, got some um, information on this, yes, go ahead. But local people were living in houses near the park, so I've started complaining about it, because when you were at the top of the Ferris, you could look down and you could see people, you know, washing the dishes, watching Coronation Street, or sometimes doing other things that we're not allowed to mention on here because it's a family programme. <laughs> so this, this, so uh, this, this was the biggest Ferris wheel in Europe? Indeed it was, yeah. 150 feet high, so, uh, and you could see it from the M6 apparently? Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, which, let's face it, when you're driving on the M6, there's nothing else to look at, so... <laughs> So the people that were driving in the motorway were quite upset when it was taken down as well, yeah. So apparently the council planners complained because the owner hadn't sought planning permission to erect the wheel. But the owner said, oh, yeah, but we don't need planning permission because it's a movable structure on our own land. Yeah, I believe that's true. And then he moved it 19 years later or whatever it was. To North Carolina, apparently. Yeah. Seems a bit excessive. They also had another unsuccessful theme park in the end. Uh, you might have heard of Watergate and possibly Nipplegate after Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake, but Morecambe had its, has actually managed to get its own gate on the Wikipedia Scandals Gate, um, and known as Blobby Gate. Mm. And if you're aware of this, so the council invested in a plan to turn Happy Mount Park into Blobby Land, um, in, in homage to Noel Edmonds' long-time long stage partner. So it was a real-life crinkly bottom. But rather predictably, nobody wanted to pay exorbitant prices to see a blancmange with chicken pox, and it only lasted about three months. So uh, yeah, the council did sue Noel Edmonds for uh, falsely advertising this, and uh, they did very, very well. They only had to pay him back nine hundred and fifty thousand pounds. <laughs> <laughs> they really needed the money, didn't they, fella, You know. Richie yeah, bust around. She's living Morecambe. It's sort of a reminiscent of the Fresh Prince. He was getting into trouble in New York, so they sent him to live with his auntie. Yeah. And the story was he, he took a pair of shoes from Hitchens on the promenade, and when his auntie found out, she was so mad that she marched him down to apologise, and they made him mop all the floor. Okay. Yeah, so before he was called Buster Rhymes, he was called Buster Pays for his crimes. <laughs> Not really, he was called Trevor, Trevor Smith. Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there are two more things about Frontierland. So apparently the site was revamped in 1987 as Frontierland, and it was opened by Jeremy Beadle. Who? Jeremy Beadle. Oh, yeah. um, but later that year there was a massive fire that gutted the Fun City building, so that was resurrected as the Crazy Horse Saloon, and apparently that was opened in 1988 by Red Rum. <laughs> How does that work? I don't know, but it did help the locals do the best to support the running theme of Frontierland. So they were drinking in the saloon, spitting and brawling in the streets. So they were really, you know, work, working hard to turn the West End into the Wild West End. Uh, Baroness Thatcher paid a visit in 1997. I don't know if kids were banned that day. Apparently she hated minors. Oh. <laughs> okay, so uh, the second theme I'm going to introduce is the Miss Great Britain contest. Has anyone been to the Miss Great Britain contest? I was, so, I was a little bit young for the Miss Great Britain. Well, between 1956 and 1989, Morecambe hosted this beauty contest, and it's the oldest pageant in the UK. The contest began in the summer of 45 under the name Bathing Beauty Queen, organised by Morecambe Local Council in partnership with the Sunday Dispatch newspaper. The first ever Miss Great Britain final in 1956 was watched by 4,300 people 
in a continuous downpour. Uh, the winner received a cup and, according to the local newspaper, a paltry prize of seven guineas, as well as a swimsuit. <laughs> Do I have swimsuit? I need you, Richard. Probably. Yeah. Yes. And, and year on year... It's a bathing cost. Yeah. I was going to say, and year on year after that, they did increase the prize money, didn't they? Because uh, it was such a paltry prize. But I guess in line with the ever-changing weather, because standing on Morecambe Bay in a swimming costume is not so much a... It's sort of beauty contest, it's a bravery <laughs> award, isn't it? Well, it's warm in here. Isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, me and Seb managed it when I came second and he won that year. You remember that? <laughs> yes, I remember. So, so some of the, uh, the people that have actually won the, the contest, so Layla Williams won in 1957. Uh, the following year she became the first female Blue Peter presenter, co-presenting with Christopher Trace. So you can, you can tell people's age by which Blue Peter presenters you associate with. So they, it's yeah. obviously... This is ringing a bell with Sid over here. So. Yeah. But she left in 1962 after a new producer was appointed, Clive Parkhurst. She said he couldn't find anything for me to do. And in October of that year, Williams didn't appear for six editions and she was eventually fired, leaving Christopher Trace on his own. So that was a, that was a day, wasn't it, for feminism? Um, Parkhurst was replaced by John Furness, a case of uh, borrowing Furness, I suppose. <laughs> so Williams married Fred Mudd, lead singer of the popular music group, not Mudd, but the Mud Larks. And whilst they were touring in the early 1970s, she worked as an assistant manager at a Dorothy Perkins shop in Harrow. Then there was 24-year-old Eileen Elizabeth Sheridan. She won in 1960. Uh, she was spotted working in a department store by a photographer who persuaded her to sign up with a model agency and then she went on to win the Miss United Kingdom uh, contest in 1958 and then Miss Great Britain in 1960. Now she married a former bookmaker and also became friends with people in the London underworld firm headed by the Cray Twins. So she attended the funerals of Ron and Reg and was a character witness at their elder brother Charlie's drug trial and she provided the famous legend wreath at Reg Cray's funeral. Or was it leg end? I'm not sure. <laughs> oh no, that was Michael Foote. Uh, so after the pageant, Sheridan spent 10 years performing in old time musicals as a male impersonator. Isn't that a strange way to end your career? <laughs> and then we've got Diana May, uh, won in 1976. So she trained as a hairdresser and model and she then moved into TV and acting. So she was in Blake's Seven, Harry's Game, and The Optimist. And apparently, in 1984, she appeared in the first Brookside Wedding, if that means anything to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, like looks all around. I know the Brookside, and not the wedding. Yes, uh, but she became Michael Winner's PA uh, for, for a number of years, ultimately. Poor woman. Indeed. So on Markham Promenade, there's a statue designed by Graham Ibbotson and opened by the Queen in 1999. Statue of Eric Morecambe, who is quite possibly Britain's best-loved comedian of all time. Incidentally, Ibbotson is from Barnsley. Eric was born 14th of May 1926 at 21 Buxton Street, so not that far from here, as John Eric Bartholomew, and he made his professional debut at the age of 13 in a touring review. Uh, took the stage name Eric Morecambe in 1948 in homage to this very place of his birth, encouraged by his mother, Sadie, and she took work as a waitress to raise funds for his dancing lesson. It's quite a good thing that he didn't live in Clanfair, but in Gagog, we could job a clan to silly gok gok gok, really, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I just took all those spare letters. <laughs> as Eric Bartholomew, he won numerous talent contests, including one in Hoylake in 1940, for which the prize was an audition in Manchester for impresario Jack Hilton. 
three months after the audition, Hilton invited Morecambe to join a review called Youth Takes a Bow about the Nottingham Empire, which is where he met Ernest Wiseman, six months older than him, who was from Leeds. Hilton was impressed with the Bartholomew and Wiseman double act and made it a regular feature in the review. <coughs> Eric was then playing the straight man, interestingly. Uh, didn't last because they then had to do their war service as the Second World War entered its final year. So Ernie joined the Merchant Navy and Eric was conscripted to work as a coal miner in Accrington as a so-called Bevin boy. So by mid-1943 there was a shortfall of about 36,000 miners. So they'd all been conscripted into the armed forces. Then they realised, oh, we haven't got enough miners. So then they conscripted uh, people from the armed forces to work in the mines, which <laughs> seems a bit strange. But they were known as the Bevin boys. And uh, one in ten men called up how to work in the mines. And many were upset because they wanted to join the fighting forces and felt undervalued. They didn't have a uniform, and some people accused them of deliberately avoiding military conscription. And Eric was one of those, one of those Bevan boys. And they didn't actually receive official recognition for their war efforts until 1995. Other Bevan boys of note include Paul Hamlin of the publishing group, uh, actor Brian Ricks, footballer Nat Lofthouse, and uh, ex-DJ uh, the disgraced Jimmy Savile. There you go. But Eric was invalided out of national service after 11 months because he had mild heart problems, uh, which obviously became more of a problem later on. Any memories of Eric Morecambe? He lost his leg on the prom. <laughs> he lost his leg on the prom? Yeah. Somebody tried to uh, saw his leg. And, oh, uh, oh, that and stealing not the real one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, there was there was a, a huge outrage about it, but uh, I saw through it. It was just somebody who'd been blocked. I saw, I saw through it. But it was just someone who'd been blocked at every avenue and just wanted to perform some orthopedic surgery. Mm. So I've seen all the episodes of Morecambe Wise. It's not yeah. necessarily in the right order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's very proud in Frandio, aren't they? So I do like to think of like Buster Rhymes' auntie sitting him down and making him watch Eric and Ernie make breakfast. <laughs> yes. Do, do you think he really needed Ernie Wise? Do you think he really needed him? Well, it was a wise yeah, man. Of course, of course it was. he did. Of course he did. Eric suffered his first heart attack in 1968. He was saved by a passerby who rushed him to hospital in his car. Uh, Des O'Connor had heard about his heart attack and asked his live TV audience to pray for his recovery. And when Eric heard about uh, this, he thanked O'Connor and said it was the prayers of those six or seven people which made all the difference. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a lovely quote, isn't it? Uh, after his heart attack, he took up pipe smoking. And previously, he'd been smoking 60 cigarettes a day and drinking heavily and was voted Pipe Smoker of the Year in 1970. <laughs> Unable to perform in the Royal Variety Show that year, the standing act was Frankie Howard. Yeah. So a few years before Eric's first heart attack, Ernie was advised by his insurance broker to consider an insurance policy to guard against anything that might happen to Eric. And Ernie was unsure but took out the policy, but it cost £200 a year, so he kept it for two years. And then when it came up for renewal in the third year, Ernie declined, saying it was a waste of money. And Eric was in good health. And of course, a week later, that's when Eric had his heart attack. So it was in 1968 that they joined the BBC and that Eddie Braben became their writer. And that's when their career really took off. And theatre critic Kenneth Tynan noted that Braben made Wise's character a comic who was not funny, while Morecambe became a straight man who was funny. 
and he made them less hostile to one another. So after his heart attack, Morecambe and then Wise uh, together in August 69 returned to the stage at Bournemouth Winter Gardens and they got a four minute standing ovation. That's how loved they were. In 1972, Morecambe and Wise did a TV ad. Now, at the time, the BBC had exclusive rights to their television appearances, so they were shown from the neck down talking about the Dulux paint. <laughs> but the bodies, as it turns out, were played by two stand-ins, and Eric and Ernie just provided the voices. Eric and Ernie switched on the illuminations in Morecambe twice. I don't know if anyone remembers that far back, in 1969 and 1975. Yeah, the council didn't pay the electricity bill the first time, that's what they had to do it for. <laughs> All right. Other celebs who have turned on the lights include Sterling Moss, Steptoe and Son, Roger Moore, and that Jimmy Savile again. <laughs> How's about that then? <laughs> the Morecambe and Wise annual Christmas shows ran on the BBC from 1968 to 1977. Um, even I remember that far back. The 1977 Christmas show still holds the record for the UK TV audience, which at that time was estimated to be 28,385,000, which is incredible when you think about it. Uh, 1976, the duo received OBEs. Um, finish off by Eric Morecambe. So he, he actually was only given, uh, I think, a few months to live after his second heart attack. I lived for another five years. So, sorry, after his first heart attack lived another five years and, and then rather famously died in the early hours of 28th of May after giving six curtain calls at a theatre in, uh, in Tewkesbury when he had another heart attack and, and unfortunately didn't, um, didn't survive that one. Uh, in 2005, the Monster Raving Looney Party launched their Manic Festo and stated that they would change the national anthem to Bring Me Sunshine. <laughs> uh, they said it's quicker, it's more tuneful, and people know the words. <laughs> so I'll just finish on some Eric Morecambe quotes, because they're, they're, they're funny, and, and Chris has already alluded to this one. I'm playing all the right notes, but not necessarily in the right order. And then, my neighbour asked if he could use my lawnmower, and I told him, of course he could, so long as he didn't take it out of my garden. <laughs> Life isn't Hollywood. Life is Cricklewood. Good. Maybe there's a context. <laughs> <laughs> Could I just say that yes. my favourite quote was when he had, had his first heart attack and he woke up in intensive care and the nurse says to him, are you alright Mr Markham? And he said, well it wouldn't do you any good getting in with me. <laughs> <laughs> well I thought it was funny anyway. So. Well it's funny when he said it. And the last one, uh, I always take my wife morning tea in my pyjamas, but is she grateful? <laughs> No, she said she'd rather have it in a cup. <laughs> so, there so I'd just like to thank Morecambe Fringe for hosting this show. And let's just thank our panellists tonight. So we have Chris Foster. <laughs> Amy B. Andy Robertson. And Sid. So a final on this day, 19th of July, 1821, King George IV was crowned. So the future George IV and his cousin Caroline of Brunswick were betrothed before they'd ever met, and when they did meet, they took an instant dislike to each other. Caroline told the Earl of Malmesbury that the prince was very fat and nothing like as handsome as in his portrait, and George found Caroline to be dumpy and neglectful of her personal hygiene to the point of being smelly. George turned to the Earl of Malmesbury and said, Harris... I am not well. Pray, get me a glass of brandy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.